My name's uh, Andy Robinson. Um, uh, until, uh, until last summer, I was uh, a church leader uh, in Oxford, which is where I still live. Um, although I'm not from Oxford originally, I'm a northerner at heart, so I was born up in Manchester. Uh, thank you. Um, and, uh, so, um, so, yeah, that meant I was a pastor rather than a pastor, which uh, various people in my church wanted to call me. Um, but uh, since, uh, since last summer, I've been leading a, a training course for thinking, those thinking about ministry in Oxford and spending two days a week working for a group called uh, Living Out, who speak into issues of faith and sexuality. So I spend about two days a week traveling the country speaking about this topic, which is an interesting way of earning a living. Um, let me explain why I do that, why I, uh, I work for Living Out. Because as we come to this issue of sexuality, it is a personal story for me. It's a last slide, there, aren't we? Um, that's fine. <laughs> got a preview of the ends. Um, uh, it is a personal story uh, for me. So um, I had the privilege of uh, having a, a Christian, that's brilliant, thanks Ben. Uh, so I had the, uh, the privilege of having uh, Christian parents. Uh, I was born into a, a Christian home. For the first 12 years of my life, I hated church. And that was partly because I was born age 40. Um, so having been born age 40, if I'm honest, I hated action songs, memory verses, <laughs> And, oh gosh, <laughs> because I was born at age 40, that was not that, I was not an, a usual child, um, but around the age of 12, um, realized that the God I'd heard about growing up uh, was real, realized at that point I didn't know him and I needed to, so became a Christian and put my trust in Jesus. Not long after that, like most human beings, started to develop sexual feelings, uh, sexual attractions. And this wasn't something that I chose, but as a teenager, those were for guys rather than girls. And let's be honest, 30 years on, that hasn't changed. And so as you put those two aspects of my life together, essentially my story for the last 30 years has been this. How do I put wanting to live for Jesus and my sexuality together? That's been one of the sort of chief questions in my life, really, for the last 30 years. That's how this, this issue impacts me. But I'm aware around the room it will sort of impact others in different ways. Maybe for some of us, when we come to this question of sexuality, we've got friends, family members in our minds, and that has an impact on how we approach the topic. It's possible for some it's a personal issue for you, even maybe one you've never spoken to anybody about. For others, it will be how do we relate to the culture, aware that, that perhaps Positions that the church has taken historically put us at odds with the prevailing view in the world around us. How do we deal with that? Or, or your question might be, how can we as a church be welcoming to those who are gay, same-sex attracted? How do we deal with that? Or, uh, and let's be honest, within the Church of England, there are questions around at the moment. Where should we land on this? Should we be pro-same-sex marriage? How do we decide? Yeah, as we come to this topic, there'll be a whole heap of different reasons it's relevant I've explained mine, it will be different for each one of us here. How have I put living for Jesus and my sexuality together? In this first session, I want to reflect mainly biblically on three or four different issues. Then there'll be a break, a chance for you to discuss. And in the second session, we'll look at how we engage as a church, how that impacts our approach to culture, and so on. 
But what I've discovered as I've wrestled with this question is a need to go backwards. A need to go backwards and think about a wider question. How do we work out who we are and what's important about ourselves? It seems to me as you look at the world around us, there are two main ways that people use to work out the most important aspect about themselves. The widespread view in our culture is that to work out who you are, you need to look inside yourself, see what's there by way of desires, and live that out. Who am I? Well, to work out who I am, I've got to look within. And that's where you find the answer to that question. Let me give you an example uh, of that. I don't know how well you can see this, actually, but let me, uh, let me read it in case you, uh, you can't. But uh, Nigel Owens was uh, one of the most successful rugby referees uh, in the world. He um, refereed the 2015 Rugby World Cup final, and he's also uh, gay. And uh, around the time he refereed the Rugby World Cup final, he gave a number of interviews, and it's an incredibly moving and powerful story. So I talked about some of the agony of growing up in a Welsh village as somebody attracted to other men. Tragically for him, there were a couple of attempts on his own life, but in the end, he comes to a place of acceptance and has a successful career, very successful career. Here's how he puts it. I couldn't accept who I was. I didn't want to be the person I was becoming. I didn't want to be gay. But after I accepted who I was, the next challenge was whether rugby would accept who I am. Rugby has supported me and players, spectators and pundits have all enabled me to be who I am. Now, I reckon you've got to be quite hard-hearted not to feel the force of a story like that. You know, the force of somebody who's been through a hard time comes to a place of acceptance and then lives a good life in many ways. But just notice the assumption in what he says. It is the essence of who we, <clears throat> the essence of who we are it is our sexuality. I think it's three times he says who I am who I am, who I am. And so that is the prevailing assumption in our culture. Who am I? Well, I am my sexuality, or I am my deepest desires, and I live that out. That's who I am. Now, if there's no God, I reckon that's the best we can manage. So actually, if there wasn't a God, the best we could manage is look inside yourself, see what's there, and live that out. That would probably be the best we could manage. But what if there is a God? What if there's a God who made the world? What if there's a God who knows me better than I know myself? What if there's a God who's shown himself to be loving and kind and wise as he walks around on the earth? What if he wants to tell me who I am and call me to live that out? Do you see the difference? Look inside yourself, see what's there, live that out. Or allow a voice from outside you to tell you who you are and live that out. Two totally different ways of doing identity. And for me, as I've begun to wrestle with the question, where I've been landing is, okay, Andy, to work out how you should live, the first thing you need to do isn't look inside, but listen to the one who loves you speaking to you. In other words, I know you've come for an afternoon on sexuality, but to work out sexuality, you've got to go backwards and ask this question, what's the universe about? You know, is the universe, does it work with me and my desires centre stage? Or does the universe work best when God and his plan is centre stage and I find my life fitting in with that? Do you see the difference? Now, for the rest of the afternoon, I'm going to assume there's a God. I, I thought I might be on fairly safe territory here with that assumption. And so given 
that there's a God who made us, who knows what's best for us. What's his plan for sexuality and marriage? How does he say we should conduct ourselves in this area? Seems to me we know that because when God walks on the earth, the person of his son, the Lord Jesus, there's a moment where he's asked a question about sexual ethics. It comes from the, uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And Jesus is asked a question about divorce. And basically Jesus says, well, before I talk about divorce, let me define marriage for you. And here's how Jesus defines marriage. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And so here Jesus goes back to the beginning. How do we define marriage? What's the right context for that one flesh sexual union? Well, let's go back to what God says at the beginning. He quotes from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Just in passing, by the way, this is one of those places where Jesus describes the Bible as God's word. Interestingly, the bit where he says, um, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother. In Genesis, that's actually the narrator of Genesis writes that. But notice in here, Matthew 19, Jesus says God says it. Uh, And it's because Jesus is working with the assumption that what Genesis says is what God says. And he does define marriage as male, female, in a lifelong union. That's why he quotes Genesis 1, God made them male and female, and then quotes Genesis 2, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So remember, I'm wrestling with this question. I want to live for Jesus. I'm wrestling with my sexuality. How do I put it together? Well, actually, Jesus does define the right context for sexual union as a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. And if I want to live for Jesus, I'm going to have to accept that, it seems to me, even though it's inconvenient or, well, let's put it sometimes more than inconvenient for me. I do think we need to be clear on this. A few years ago, I was uh, in a, a church setting, and it was a church trying to work out where it was going to land on this question. And uh, it wasn't an Anglican church, it was a, a Baptist church, actually. The, the minister had sort of preached a sermon before I came, where he kind of said, well, you know, the Bible seems to be pretty negative about same-sex marriage, but of course Jesus was really welcoming and inclusive. Now, gloriously, Jesus is wonderfully welcoming and inclusive. But I do remember thinking, actually, sentences that go, the Bible says dot, 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 but Jesus says dot, 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 is always mildly problematic, because it will sort of drive a wedge between those two things. More than that, it's sometimes said that Jesus has got nothing really to say about the issue of sexuality. Now, it's true that Jesus doesn't specifically talk about same-sex sexual activity, but he does define marriage here, and throughout the Gospels, he does talk about sexual immorality. And it seems to me as he does that, he is accepting the view that those in front of him would have had, the view from the Old Testament, that actually sex outside this marriage union heterosexual marriage union is what he means by sexual immorality. In other words, I think we can be fairly clear what Jesus thinks on this issue. It seems to me one of the dangers we sometimes have 
is to fall into a trap that Christians down the centuries have fallen into. Now, actually, this illustration doesn't quite work in this building, but if you go to older church buildings, you know how you kind of see stained glass windows. And often if you look at the picture of Jesus in the stained glass windows, he tends to be kind of quite blonde and blue-eyed. Have you noticed that? In other words, almost certainly nothing like the real Jesus would have actually looked like. And it's because what Christians have done down the centuries is, ah, Jesus, Jesus must kind of look a bit like us. And so it doesn't entirely surprise me that people are beginning to think, well, Jesus' attitude on sexuality, it must be basically the kind of same as we think, because Christians have always been tempted to turn Jesus into an image of us. Whereas I do need to be honest, as you look at the Gospels, the Jesus who actually walked around on the earth does seem to define marriage as male-female. And I'm not sure we can get around that, actually, if we want to be faithful to Jesus. But it's worth noticing how he goes on. Because as the conversation goes on, the kind of disciples say, whoa, Jesus, your sexual ethics are quite tight. Maybe it'd be better if people didn't get married. And Jesus, rather than say, no, 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 of course, he actually says, well, actually, for some people, that might well be the case. He talks about eunuchs, those who, for various reasons, don't have sexual relationships. And he says there are eunuchs who are born that way. The eunuchs who've been made that way by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, there will be reasons people don't have sex, maybe for physical disability that they've had since birth, maybe because, and this happened in ancient society, sadly, you know, people were castrated, actually, if they entered uh, government service. Or, he says, there will be those who choose not to have sexual relationships because they're loyal to God's kingdom. And they recognise that to be loyal to him in a particular area will involve not having sexual relationships. In other words, Jesus gives great dignity to those who don't have sex. Great dignity to those who are single. Come on, it's this passage that means the world to me. Let's be honest, sometimes we're not great at uh, thinking through singleness. I remember a few years ago, I was a visiting speaker at a church and you know, just doing the small talk beforehand, somebody said to me, oh, so have you left your wife and kids at home? So I said, well, I'm not married, actually. To which says, oh, oh, have you never found anybody you like? And then they actually doubled down, or have you never found anybody who likes you? And it, it was one of those slightly sort of traumatic experiences. But here, Jesus gives great dignity to those who are single. And so as you put these two things together, you have Jesus talking about marriage as male and female, but then saying, and those who don't have sex because they're wanting to live for me, I recognize the value of that. So of course, in a sense, it kind of describes Jesus himself, actually. Jesus, who doesn't have a sexual relationship. Why? Well, at one level, because the mission agreed with his father that he's going to the cross, which would have been quite hard had he been married. And so Jesus, great dignity to those who are single, even as he also talks about marriage being male-female. Now, I'm not going to spend long on this, but it is worth noticing that what Jesus puts positively, this is the right context for sex, male-female marriage, the rest of the Bible puts negatively. Not many references, but it is worth saying that all the, all the references to same-sex sexual activity in the Bible are negative. And so Paul, in Romans 1, will talk about the problem facing humanity. 
human beings, though they knew God, neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. The problem we all face, we don't recognize God as our creator and show loyalty to him. And Paul says there are various ways that works itself out. The thing I'm about to mention is only one of them, but one way in which a rejection of God and his plan works out will be this, God gave people over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the man also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. And so same-sex sexual activity is a rejection of God's plan there at the beginning that marriage is to be male, female. And then you do have, uh, in a couple of places, 1 Corinthians 6 is one example, where Paul just has a list of sins and again, it's worth saying it's a list. Again, same-sex sexual activity isn't the sin. It's just part of a list. But nevertheless, in that list is uh, something the NIV has translated, men who have sex with men. And sometimes it's suggested, yeah, that doesn't mean a kind of loving, monogamous relationship. It, it, that kind of only means exploitative relationships. But I have to be honest, that isn't the case, actually. Paul is, is using a word incredibly close to the Greek translation of the Old Testament. When Leviticus 18, it says, don't have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. Paul's using an almost identical word in 1 Corinthians 6. And there the prohibition is not just against some same-sex sexual relationships, but all of them actually. And so whether it's Jesus defining marriage positively or the rest of the Bible saying that same-sex sexual activity is sinful, there is a consistency there. And again, if I want to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, I need to accept that. But let me tell you the conversation I have most frequently. It goes something like this. I kind of teach or have a conversation with a friend where I talk about some of the stuff I've just talked about. And the main response that I get goes something like this. Okay, Andy, I can see it's in the Bible. I just don't like it. And probably the nervous laughter indicates, yeah, I can sense that. Or even after we've, okay, I can see Jesus teaches it. I just don't like it. I wish it said something different. And I can understand that. But in the end, if you land with it's in the Bible, but I don't like it, it kind of makes God the kind of God who makes you eat sprouts let me assume for the moment you are sensible and you think sprouts are repulsive. You know, it's kind of the God who makes you tolerate stuff that's not very nice, but you've kind of got to swallow it. And what I want to do in the remaining time in this first session is try and persuade you that it's in the Bible and it's good news. It's in the Bible and it's good news. Because what we're going to see is God's ultimate purpose for sexuality and marriage. Because what you notice as you work your way through the Bible is that marriage gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So it starts with human marriage, you know, Adam and Eve, and then Jacob quite likes getting married and so on. You, you, you cannot have human marriage. And then it gets bigger as you work your way through. So here's Isaiah 54 verse 5. Your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. And this speaking to God's people. And so now the relationship that God has with his people is marriage-like. It's in Isaiah 54, just after Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, you have an image of a servant who's going to suffer, be pierced for our transgressions. Astonishing picture, centuries in advance of what Jesus will do on the cross. And the following chapters pick up all the difference that makes. Now the relationship between God and his people, it's like marriage. 
Or here are some of my favourite verses in the whole Bible from Isaiah 62. You will be a crown of splendour in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. And speaking to God's people, no longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoice over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. So I used to be a, a church leader, and, and that involved occasionally standing, I don't know, somewhere like here. And over there would be a, a guy looking quite nervous in a sort of awkwardly fitting suit. And there at the back would be a woman dressed in white. And the joy of standing here was I got to see his face as she's walking up the aisle. And he was normally vaguely positive about what he saw. <laughs> he was kind of thrilled. Hey, she's beautiful. She's coming for me. And as a bridegroom rejoice over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Aren't those astonishing words? I don't know about you, those are the kind of words I wouldn't dare write. But it speaks of God's love for us, his people. And so you have this promise of God being like a bridegroom. They kind of hang around for a few centuries until Jesus walks onto the pages of history. And he's asked, actually, John the Baptist's disciples, asking, you know, why don't you and your disciples fast? And Jesus says this, how can the guests the bridegroom mourn while he's still with them? And it's one of three places, I think, in the Gospels where Jesus uses bridegroom imagery to describe himself. You know, one of the reasons we get thrilled by Christmas is Jesus coming as a bridegroom wanting a bride, wanting a people that he's going to love and who are going to love him forever and ever and ever. People he's going to die for to make them radiant and glorious and beautiful. Jesus arrives as the bridegroom king. Uh, and that leads to the apostle Paul. Paul, Paul I love the way Paul does this. Paul talks about marriage as a profound mystery, which I have to be honest, I have sympathy with that. But Paul talks about marriage as a profound mystery. When Paul uses the language of mystery, it's basically something that's been hinted at. But now with the coming of Jesus, the full mystery has been revealed. And Paul is saying in Ephesians 5 that, that basically until Jesus comes, in many ways the whole purpose of marriage is a bit of a mystery. But now with his coming, the purpose of marriage has been revealed. That marriage is ultimately about Jesus and the church. It's funny that maybe that's not the way we'd naturally define marriage. But actually in Ephesians 5, Paul can't help keeping talking about Jesus and the church whenever marriage comes along. Marriage is a pointer. Because it's a pointer to the end of time. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Can you imagine that day? Jesus, will you take this church to be your wedded wife? I will. Church, will you take this Jesus to be your husband? We will. And we will indeed live happily ever after. It's going to be quite good. A Christian's future is to have a leading role in the greatest royal wedding the universe has ever known. 
Christian's future is to have a leading role in the greatest royal wedding the universe has ever known. And I know for some of us that can feel a bit mystifying, maybe particularly the blokes here. The idea of being Jesus' bride feels a bit weird. But it seems to me the reason that imagery is used is this. Probably in this life, the greatest intensity of emotion, the greatest intensity of feeling that we have, tends to be in this area of romance, love, sex, marriage. That tends to be the greatest intensity of feeling. And this is saying that is but a pale reflection of the sheer intensity of feeling that there is of Jesus' love for us and the love we will have for him on that day. The greatest wedding day in this life is but a pale reflection of just how good that day is going to be and it's going to last forever and ever. Christian's future is to have a leading role in the greatest royal wedding the universe has ever known. Now, for Christians particularly, that's got to have implications. Because if the Bible is saying it's a picture that points beyond itself, if the Bible starts with a wedding, Adam and Eve, and ends with a wedding, Jesus and the church, and the first of those is pointing to the second, that's got to impact the way we view sex and marriage. That's why we long for marriages that are loving and faithful. Why? Because they're intended to be a picture of the relationship between Jesus and the church and his faithful love towards us. But it is a reason also why Christians believe that marriage has to be heterosexual. Because the eternal union, the union between Jesus and the church that's going to last forever, is a union between people who are different. Jesus and the church are not interchangeable. The church doesn't die for Jesus' sins. Do you see they're different? And that's the picture that is given to us in human marriage, a union between people who are different. Forgive me, because this is a personal issue for me, I generally hate trite statements on it. But if you'll forgive me one, in eternity Jesus doesn't marry Jesus. And in eternity the church doesn't marry the church. I mean, can you imagine the church marrying the church without Jesus? You really would have an eternity of notices. You've got to have this union in difference. Jesus and the church. That's what marriage is about, ultimately. It's a picture that paints beyond itself. I think probably one of the reasons we sometimes perhaps get confused in this area is because that's not the way we naturally think. C.S. Lewis doesn't put it tritely. He puts it like this. One of the functions of human marriage is to express the nature of the union between Christ and the church. We have no authority to take the living and seminal figures which God has painted on the canvas of our nature and shift them about as if they were mere geometrical figures. Let me put that more simply. Sister Lewis is saying basically in marriage God has painted a, a portrait, a picture, a picture of eternity. A picture of Jesus and the church together forever. And he's saying, and I would agree with this, we haven't got the freedom to say, actually, the picture would work just as well if we just changed that around and tweaked that around. We, we can do that and it will still work, won't it? Actually, I don't think God's given us that freedom. This is the picture that God has painted. In other words, what I'm saying is this, that effectively sexuality is designed as a signpost Sexuality is designed as a signpost to eternity, 
a signpost to the ultimate wedding, a signpost that picks up the sheer, uh, the sheer intensity of the love that God has for us and we're, we will have for him in eternity. It's a signpost that points to something else. Now, the problem is what we've done in our culture, and sometimes, frankly, we've done in the church as well, is we've forgotten that it's a signpost. It's almost as though you're going on a, I don't know, once-in-a-lifetime trip to, say, the Grand Canyon. You're kind of driving along and you kind of see a signpost, Grand Canyon, three miles that way. And we kind of stop and get out the car and we put nice hats on and we have a party and we take pictures and we have a celebration and then we go home. And people at home ask, you know, what was the Grand Canyon like? And we say, oh, the signpost was amazing. And that's what we do in our culture where the chief goal is to find that other person that romantic relationship that somehow completes us. Where that is the main goal, culture has forgotten that it's a signpost. But let's be honest, sometimes the church has been guilty of that as well, hasn't it? Where it's said to people, oh, the main goal in life, you, you must get married. You must find that other person. And that's the main thing you should be aspiring to. Actually, the church has forgotten it's intended to be a signpost. Can I say, the main goal for every human being is to get married as part of the church to Jesus. That's the main goal for human beings. That's what it's all about, ultimately. And I think it's actually profoundly healthy for us to have that signpost imagery. It's probably healthy for those of us who are married. Um, Occasionally it reaches my ears that sometimes marriages aren't always easy. I, I, I've just sort of picked that up from the old conversation with friends. And uh, it's funny enough, it happened in an event, a living out event that a couple of us were doing, and I was teaching something similar to this. And, and somebody came up to us and said, I think you saved my marriage this morning. I said, what? I said, well, I've just been on, my phone, on, my, on the phone to my wife. We've been at each other's throats and it, it was because we expected this relationship to be perfect and whenever it was and we slightly disappointed each other, it was a disaster. And actually, I think you've just been telling me that my marriage isn't supposed to be perfect, but to point to the one that is. He said, that's just been really healthy, actually, just to take the pressure off. This doesn't need to fulfill me completely, but to point to the relationship that does. I also want to suggest it is healthy for those of us who aren't married, who are single, Believe me, I know some of the pain of that. I really do. But, but the thing that helps me is, is to see something like this. In the end, if I don't have a sexual relationship in this life, I'm not missing out ultimately. I'm just missing out on the signpost. I'm going to get the real thing. And I've done the maths. I'm going to be single for about 0.0000001% of my existence. And as part of the church, I'm going to be married to Jesus for about 99.999999% of my existence because life is short and eternity is long. And I think we just need to hold on to that, actually. You know, I, again, one of the ways in which we need to be distinctively Christian is to recognize just the shortness of this life and the length of eternity. That's actually the perspective that the Bible gives us. In other words, what I'm inviting us to do is to turn the telescope around. Because I think often the way we view it is to say something like this, the main thing is finding your romantic partner in this life. 
Oh, and there's the kind of Christ and the church thing as well, isn't there? But, you know, the, and what I'm wanting to say is actually if we think in line with Jesus, we'll be saying Christ and the church for everything, that forever, that is everything. Oh, and there's sort of human relationships in this life as well. It's just slightly changing the perspective that we often have, it seems to me, on the purpose of sex and romance. So, three main reasons for me as to why I'm living the way that I am in terms of acknowledging Jesus Lord. Because what the universe is about, God tells me who I am. And that's best for me, rather than just look inside yourself. Secondly, because of what Jesus says about sex and marriage, he does define marriage as heterosexual. Thirdly, because of what sex and marriage is a picture of, the ultimate union between Christ and the church, and we're to work back from that to do our sexual ethics. And then briefly, and lastly, it does seem to me that what I've taught does fit with the general pattern of the Christian life. Isn't Jesus remarkable? Sometimes imagine Jesus with a big crowd in front of him. And, you know, to be honest, if I had a big crowd in front of me, Parnu would say, hey, come to Jesus. It's wonderful. It's magnificent. It'll give you life in all its fullness and it's wonderfully fulfilling. Come to Jesus. It's brilliant. Here's Jesus with a crowd. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Oh, come on, Jesus. Do you really have to make it that difficult? I mean, I mean couldn't you have just accentuated the positives? And actually, there's no way around this, that Jesus expects that for people who follow him, there will be significant elements of self-denial. So actually, when Jesus says, Andy... I know who you're sexually attracted to, but actually if you follow me, it will involve not living that out. I can't complain that he's not told me. More than that, I can't complain, hey, Jesus, you're living a life of luxury and telling me to carry my cross. Because, of course, he's off to the cross as he says it. And I need to be honest, the general pattern of the Christian life does involve denying things that actually are pretty important to us. It's just part of the deal. Because actually that's the way to gain life. Do you notice? Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Have there been moments of pain, times of pain in some of the decisions I've made not to have a sexual relationship because that's what I believe Jesus is calling me to? Yeah, of course there's a cost to that. But if I, was, I also don't want to overplay the cost of that. Because actually it's probably been the thing that's driven me most into knowing the Lord more. It's certainly been the thing that has made me pursue sort of non-romantic, non-sexual friendships. And I'm so grateful for the friendships that I've got. In other words, there are ways to gain life even as you say no to certain aspects of life. That's just the pattern of the Christian life, according to Jesus. And as we face costs, or perhaps make sacrifice even in the area of sexuality. I love the attitude of Jesus. Here's what we find in Hebrews 2. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. You know, one of the things that means so much to me 
It's as I wrestle with temptation in this area, and let's be honest, there'll be wrestles probably in this area with temptation for all of us in different ways. Jesus is the one who's profoundly sympathetic. The one who'll say, I know what temptation's like. I'm with you. You know, the, the lovely thing about this, you know, as we wrestle with these sexuality questions is, I am not encouraging us to sort of come to this with a kind of uh, mentality because Jesus doesn't come to this with an uh, mentality. He knows what temptation's like and he's able to sympathize. And the passage that, as a draw to close, means the world to me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul has this thorn in the flesh. It's obviously really painful to him. And three times he prays the Lord, Lord, take it away from me, take it away from me, take it away from me. And probably certainly in my teenage years, though, to be honest, not recently, but in my teenage years, probably as I thought about my sexuality, I think I prayed slightly more than three times. But God's response to Paul, probably my, God's response to me over the years has been this, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness. And again, as we embrace cost, and there should be cost for all of us, actually, in different areas of life as we live for Jesus. His response is, my grace is enough for you. I will keep you going. One of the reasons that people tend to uh, change their position on sexuality, if I'm honest, generally it isn't because the Bible says something different to what it said for 2,000 years. Often the reason I think people change their position on sexuality is just the power of stories, might be things like the Nigel Owens story that we saw earlier, just a really powerful story. Or, and I can understand this, it, it may well be the stories of people closest to us, family, friends. Actually, it's their stories that make, me, make us wonder, you know, is what the Bible says right? But I just want us to be convinced that the Christian really does have the best story. Let me tell you the story of Julia. Julia is basically a composite of various people that I know. So, in Julia's case, not born in a Christian family, not a Christian, grew up as a teenager, knew she was attracted to other women, had a couple of relationships, before, in her case, she went off to university and was befriended by Christians who knew about her sexuality and yet showed interest in her, loved her, invited her along to church, and God worked in her life and Julia became a Christian. And actually, from the outset of being a Christian, she did have a clarity. Okay, if what Jesus says about marriage is right, that does mean I need to say no to sexual relationships with women. And that wasn't easy, and certainly in her first few years of a Christian life, there were one or two slips, and she had to come back and repent. And it was painful at times, painful sometimes to watch friends get married and so on. But what Julia did was she threw herself into church, found a spiritual family, led the church youth group, had spiritual children. And so there was a fulfilling life. Until the moment comes when Julia dies, she meets the Lord. I saw it all. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enjoy your wedding day. And 10,000 years into eternity, she ends up saying, I'm so glad I was faithful to Jesus. just want to say that's the Christian story, isn't it? Not embellish that particularly, that's just the story of the Christian life according to the Bible. And I want us to be convinced it really is the best story in the world.